Welcome everyone to episode 192 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thanks for joining your regular hosts, Tierra and Jack. What is a exciting Q&A? And this first question says, what is the difference between carbs versus net carbs? Oh man, this good old net carbs just adding a whole nother layer of confusion to nutrition. <laughs> Right? As if carbohydrate intake didn't confuse people enough. Now we're trying to talk about what's the difference between a carb and a net carb? Mm. Yeah, plenty of terminology to throw around. Yeah, but hey, it's important to obviously explain what is the difference between these two terminologies. So the way that I like to think about this when it comes to total carbohydrates in a food versus net carbohydrates in a food is... Imagine that you went sailing and you're out at sea, but you're not in the Pacific or the Atlantic or the Indian Ocean, but arguably you're actually in one of the most glorious oceans on the planet, and that is the ocean of carbohydrates. You're just out there voyaging just through an abundance of carbohydrate sources. Sounds pretty wonderful, eh? Yeah, if you're dieting. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it's it's just a day in the life for Jack Radford Smith, just, uh, you know, coasting along. You're dieting at the moment, right? I am. And yeah. I believe my carbohydrate intake is sub a third of yours. But imagine that you are out sailing in a sea of carbohydrate sources. And then imagine that you decide to cast out a net off your ship. And we all know what a net looks like, you know, it's generally made of rope or some sort of material, but a net has small little gaping holes in it. So you cast out this big net and then you try to pull it back into your ship. What you're going to catch in that net is carbohydrates. So net carbohydrates are the carbohydrates that you can actually digest from food. But what is going to escape that net is fiber. So you can think of carbohydrates as these larger, almost particles. And then you can think of fiber as these smaller particles that are actually going to escape through the net. So when we're talking about net carbs, we're talking about the actual component of a carbohydrate containing food that you can extract carbohydrates from and you can actually utilize the glucose from that food. And it's actually the digestible carbohydrates in a food. Whereas the dietary fiber, that is the undigestible form from the carbohydrates. So these different foods, when it talks about total carbohydrates in a food, that's where it's actually adding the net carbohydrates and the dietary fiber component of a food together. And they do that in a number of different countries. So for example, in the USA and in Canada, when you read a nutrition label or you use a USDA entry on a tracking app such as MyFitnessPal, it'll often actually tell you the total carbohydrate intake in that food, which means that it is combining the net carbs, so the digestible carbohydrates in that food, and the fiber in that food, and they're lump summing it together. So that's why when you read the carbohydrate value there, you're like, oh man, this is a little bit higher compared to places like Europe or Australia. When we actually list on nutritional labels carbohydrate content, it's the net carbohydrate content 
and then they will separate the dietary fiber content from that. Yeah, it's good, useful to know. And I would say that there's not always uniformity across the board. Mm. Like you still have to look on the back of a particular packet. Like for example, if it's maybe something that is from the US, then you should be wary. Or also, for example, if you're, let's say, having rice and then you search for a rice entry on MyFitnessPal, whatever tracking app that you're using, bear in mind that if you choose one from the US of A, then it's going to be different. It's going to be total carbs. Yeah. A good example here is that on MyFitnessPal, you can actually see how it changes for even different fruits and vegetables, depending on whether or not you use a nut tab entry or a USDA entry. So what you could do is even just look up a carrot and you could type in carrot nut tab and you could do a hundred grams of carrot from nut tab. What it will then list is it will tell you the carbohydrates in that carrot and then it will tell you the dietary fiber component in that carrot. And then if you type in carrot USDA and you do 100 grams of carrot from the USDA, you'll actually notice that the carbohydrate content is actually a few grams higher. But then if you look at the dietary fiber, you'll see that it's fairly similar, like within a gram. And that's simply because on that USDA entry, they are combining the net carbs and the dietary fiber to then give you a total carbohydrate content of that food. Whereas with the nut tab entry, they're separating the two. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure that'll be news for a lot of people. Yeah, but hey, the thing is, don't get too lost in the weeds over this thing. We're literally talking about the differentiation of a few grams. <laughs> so it's nothing really to get your, ah, Australians like to say, your knickers in a twist over. <laughs> yeah, I, I use that all the time, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> but what, in what case would actually be important, Jack, do you think to actually be paying attention to what's the difference between my total carbohydrate intake versus my net carbohydrate intake? So I think, especially when dieting, it's just being consistent. So choosing the correct entries and staying consistent with your food choices as well, because otherwise it will be quite undulating in terms of your carbohydrate intake, especially if you are on 100 grams of carbs a day. And like Tierra, you might be eventually on something like 100 grams of carbs in this prep, maybe. And you have like 50 grams of fiber a day. So imagine if you suddenly switched all your entries to total carbs, then like you would then fluctuate your carbohydrate intake by 50%. Mm. So uh, versus obviously someone who's having like 600 grams of carbs a day and 50 grams of fiber, there's not going to be as much of a difference there. So I think consistency is key and just paying attention to the entries that you're using on my fitness pal and they're matching up with whatever country you're in. Mm, yeah. Or let's say that someone wanted to go onto a ketogenic diet, you know, maybe just out of interest because they were interested in how they would respond to that type of dietary pattern or perhaps for medical reasons. For example, people who suffer from epilepsy, it's actually been shown as a form of medical nutrition therapy that following a ketogenic diet and getting yourself into ketosis can potentially aid in having less epileptic fits. So, you know, if someone was on a very high fat ketogenic diet, they would be wanting to pay attention to their total carbohydrate intake and their net carbohydrate intake. Because in order to properly get yourself into ketosis, you need to have an exceptionally low intake of 
digestible carbohydrate sources. So we're talking in the realm of, you know, south of maybe 50 grams of actual digestible carbs. But in that case too, you need to recognize that, well, you still need adequate dietary fiber in your diet for a number of health reasons, but also so that you have sufficient digestion and things can move along and, uh, you know, you can feel comfortable in your guts and all that good stuff. But that is a case where someone could obviously be saying, okay, I need a total carbohydrate intake for the day of 80 grams, but 30 of those grams or more could come from dietary fiber. So my net carbohydrate intake is still 50 grams or less of actual digestible carbohydrates. So that's an example. Or for example, there's other sports where making weight is actually really important and dietary protocols involved in that are often along the lines of you're trying to deplete athletes glycogen stores so that they retain less total body water and they can weigh in a bit lighter. So sports like wrestling or sports like fighting, those are even examples where if someone is doing a, not a chronic carbohydrate deplete, but perhaps a few days in a row and it's not just super acute, that's a case where you'd obviously want to monitor total carbohydrate intake and then also understand the net carbohydrate intake there so that maybe if this athlete is still consuming a little bit of dietary fiber so that they can obviously have bowel motions each day and they're not constipated and everything's, you know, just going to backfire on that front, but they're still able to obviously deplete their glycogen stores because they aren't consuming a high amount of net carbs. Hence, they're not storing a lot of glycogen, but they're still consuming some dietary fiber. Heck, there was even that recent study that Menno Henselman did a little bit of a review on talking about people's dietary fiber intakes, Jack. Yeah, so basically what they established from that was higher dietary fiber intakes correlated with a 5% increase in energy expenditure due to basically uh, higher or more digestion used to uh, metabolize the dietary fiber. Mm. So... Yeah, if you want, you can eat an extra 100 calories on, that would be what, a 2,000 calorie diet? Yeah, and I believe the difference in dietary fiber there was they were comparing like the average Western diet, which is very subpar with fiber. I think they were consuming like 14 grams per day. And then the other high fiber diet intake was around 55 grams per day. Mm. Yeah, which is about our fiber intake right now. Yeah, it's despite our very different caloric intake. <laughs> yeah. But heck, 5%, I, I don't believe they were consuming a 2,000 calorie diet though. But just as an example, 5% of a 2,000 calorie diet would be about 100 calories. And it's funny when they say energy expended because I don't think it's just from the energy that you expend you know, trying to break down those foods per se through the thermic effect of food. I think it's literally calories expended. So like these people are just going poop a little bit more. So mm -hmm. you're actually excreting a few more calories. Yes. Yeah. There's some malabsorption happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Combined with increased energy demands for di digestion. Yeah. So heck, you know, I know there are a lot of people that want to focus on those little one percenters. And if you needed even more of a reason to eat more plant matter 
and have a very nutritious diet, you might just score a bonus there by burning maybe an extra 100 plus calories per day. Burning, excreting, pooing. Yeah, mixture of all three. <laughs> you can decide that. But let's move on to this next question. It says, what do you change in your training when you're in a deficit versus when you're in a surplus? So there, it really depends on the extent of the deficit and the experience of the individual. But I think initially not much changes. And I think it's very easy to say not much changes, but there is a fair bit more nuance to it than, than that. So when, when we diet, like one of the most important terms that I use now is, is stimulus because yes, it's nice to retain performance, but performance you can still retain performance, but not get the same stimulus. So for example, if you're doing a squat and you retain the same numbers, you can still have a reduced stimulus if you get less range of motion or if you um, bomb into the hole and then use your stretch reflex to come back out. So I like to still prioritize performance with my clients, but ensure that stimulus is still prioritized as well. And that's just gonna mainly come down to execution while still maintaining uh, a certain degree of intensity, like good intensity. So I say to them, the, the main thing I care about is how hard you train within the session combined with your execution. So it's okay to reduce the load when you need to in order to still prioritize stimulus and execution. And I would say that's one of the most important things and, and mindset changes that needs to happen in the diet. And I think it's going to be even harder for those individuals who don't have good stimulus to begin with. So if you're going into a diet and you are already struggling with execution in a lot of your movements, which to be honest, the majority of people probably are. Um, and I don't mean so something as simple as like, okay, you don't get enough range of motion in your squat. Like that's pretty obvious someone doing um, like quarter squats, but I mean more so like zero centric control adequate is your change in direction adequate in, in your, in your reps. Are you setting up this movement appropriately for what muscle group you're trying to bias, like a lat pull down or a lat biased row or an upper back biased row or a quad biased leg press or a quad biased squat? So a few things to consider from that point. And, and then depending on how much weight someone is losing, depends on the duration of the diet as well. We can then start to look into, okay, do certain exercises actually need to change uh, based on someone's recovery capabilities. Like is someone going to be able to deadlift throughout a whole 25 week comp prep where they're getting to suboptimal levels of body fat? They're probably not going to be able to do that. Uh, some chosen individuals might be able to, but that's when we would start looking at uh, subbing out certain exercises as our ability to brace and stabilize decreases and our recovery capabilities decrease. And maybe we might tinkle with volume at that time as well. Like uh, potentially reduce volume because we know that we we do need I mean we do need less volume to maintain muscle but do we need more volume once we get to shredded levels of body fat to maintain muscle maybe we maybe we do that hasn't really been assessed from my understanding so a few things to look at there mm, and so many things that you said there I think almost debunk a bit of the status quo, or at least what people are almost under the impression of when they go into a dieting phase versus when they go into a surplus. It's like there needs to be this night and day stark difference between your training. But I think 
it really, it's, there's a lot more caveats the more chronic the dieting phase is, but especially the more acute it is, and especially in those initial stages of the diet, I just like to remind people that, hey, if you're just coming off the back end of a building phase or a solid surplus phase, and now we're going into a dieting phase, whether that be a mini cut, whether that be just a standard dieting phase in an improvement season, whether that be the initial stages of comp prep, I think that you have to remember that what built that muscle initially is very likely to help that muscle stick around. So it's not the case of just because your calorie intake is changing means that your training approach needs to drastically change too. Because I think that there is this notion that if you have more calories on board, people convince themselves that they're just, they're going to be able to train harder. They're going to be able to still lift really heavy loads and really push themselves in the gym. And maybe they can even play around with doing a few less sets, but just really high quality, hardworking sets. Whereas when they have a reduction in total calorie intake, that's where they need to flip things on their head. They need to reduce the load. They need to really focus on tempo. They need to drastically increase the reps. They need to start doing these different exercises when it's the case of, man, if it helped you build muscle in the first place, keep it up. And it's probably going to assist with you retaining that muscle mass, regardless of your calorie intake. Yeah. I think the hardest part about training in a deficit is just the intensity required to maintain what you what you were lifting in the off season or whatever your gaining phase was especially for people who truly train hard in the off season then you yeah it becomes very very difficult but even for people who maybe don't train hard enough in the off season it then still becomes harder in a deficit and that's where yeah you really need to find some minerals to to make it work <laughs> what some some actual minerals yeah, some some sniffing salts maybe. <laughs> uh, some it's interesting because I'm five weeks now into a deficit myself in this in these early stages of prep, and this being now a dieting phase that I'm going into after completing many many in the past, the way that I'm really approaching my training thus far this prep is really from a mindset standpoint and. Ultimately, at the end of my improvement season, I was pushing myself so gosh darn hard in those final few weeks to really just hit some top numbers, particularly for my big compound movements, like lifting weights that just really kind of scare the crap out of me, to say the least, like definitely getting a little bit of lifting anxiety and, you know, my heart rate is just elevated before the set even starts and I'm just anticipating it. And I just know that it's going to be a serious challenge and I'm really going to have to fight for it. So in those final few weeks, I really pushed my limits and got these top numbers for my compounds. But then now going into this dieting phase, what I've kind of done from a psychological standpoint is said, okay, I achieved those numbers when I was on twice the amount of carbohydrate intake. I was on over like 1000 extra calories per day. I had a few more kilos of body weight on my frame. What I've now done going into this dieting phase is set that as the standard. And I haven't actually put pressure on myself to then keep trying to perform in terms of increasing the load, increasing the reps. But to me, I'm like, okay, during that improvement season, basically I'm now starting this dieting phase 
with like 97% of the muscle that I'm going to have when I step on stage next year. And what helped build that muscle, if I continue to do that, is going to help it stick around. So what I've actually just done with my training for these past five weeks is still gone into the gym with the same level of in focus, but I've just told myself, Tiara, match it. If you can match those numbers now, despite eating a bit less food, having a few less kilos on your frame, right? Being a little bit more dieted, but you can still hit those top numbers that freaked the crap out of you when you know you were in abundance of calories and everything like that in in the improvement season i think that's a win and i've actually been able to do that my performance has still been really stellar these past number of weeks training's still been really really tough but it feels good man and psychologically it feels good because i know if anything that's actually still me progressing with my performance because I've never been able to lift these loads for these amount of reps with this sort of execution and intensity, but at this body composition or consuming this amount of food. Yeah, I think the disclaimer is if your if your um, execution remains intact because mm. you can't get too married to particular numbers in the gym when you are dieting because otherwise you'll continue trying to match and match it mm. and, and your form will degrade over time. Mm. Yeah. So what are some examples there of movements you think that could happen to people? On pressing movements, you get less range of motion and both upper and lower body pressing movements. And if the eccentric is rushed considerably as well in particular movements or excessive body momentum used in something like a, a pulling movement too. Um, so yeah, those, those sorts of things. Yeah. And I'd say even for that, it's not always the case of people are just compromising their range of motion because they're trying to make it easier. It's literally the case that like your body composition's changing. So think about a pressing movement. Like imagine if you were doing a barbell bench press, peak improvement season, probably got a little bit more fat on your upper back. You've got a bit more fat on your tush. You've probably got a bit more fat on your chest. <laughs> but then as you start to diet and lose body fat, you're going to get leaner in those areas. You're going to have a bit less space on your upper back, on your chest, on your butt. You're going to be a lot more just kind of pancake to that bench. And then you're trying to bring a bar down to still standardize it to your chest with every rep, right? Not only are do you have less glycogen in your triceps and your delts and your chest, not only are maybe you chronically dieted, but also like you literally are going through a greater range of motion there with the previous load. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I am um, and a, a potentially a reason why barbell bench isn't one of the best for deficits. Mm. But you could, couldn't you say any sort of pressing movement, right? Yeah, uh, potentially not something like a machine press or a dumbbell because mm. for those movements, you don't use your chest as a metric of range of motion. Mm. I know that when I do dumbbell incline bench, I try to bring the dumbbells like down to my delts. Mm. Yeah, so... Like for me, for example, when I do dumbbell bench, like the, I don't personally use the dumbbells touching my chest as a reference point because mm. they're to either side of my chest. Yeah. But it's another important thing too, is that you really need to be tracking your training as well. One, so you can see what you achieved in the week prior and the weeks prior to that. So you know what obviously you're capable of, but also then if it's the case of, you know, you're fighting tooth and nail, but you just have to bite the bullet in the sense of like, 
man, I'm trying to lift this exact same load that I accomplished six weeks ago when, you know, circumstances were very different. But heck, like I'm married to the number, but I only got three reps. And in the past, I've got eight. It's time there to obviously just push your ego aside, maybe slightly reduce the load, but don't take like huge numbers off. Like, let's say that a girl was, you know, dumbbell benching the 20s. Don't go down to the 15s or the 12.5s. Like, maybe go down to like the 18s <laughs> or like the 17.5s, but you don't need to take like an, an enormous dip. Yeah, I would just take maybe 5 to 10% off, mm. depending on the movement. Yeah, but to make sure that you're still executing well, I think there's something to say there to make sure that you're filming your training and that just see how you're actually performing as well. Because I even know after these past number of weeks, like as my glycogen stores have obviously reduced, I don't actually quite get Jack that same stimulus that I used to when my carbohydrate intake was a lot higher. And I think that's actually related to the pump. Like for example, I'm still matching my RDL top sets and back off sets with like 110 kilos for my top set, back off sets are 100, still the same reps as I was maybe about four kilos ago. And when I was on like 400 grams of carbs instead of 200 grams of carbs, but, and I film the sets and they still look the same, but I know that when I'm in the set, I actually just don't feel my hamstrings as much anymore. I don't feel my glutes as much anymore. And I know that in the past, right, a past Tierra almost like was so bothered by that, that I was like, oh, I have to chase that feeling of sensation. I have to chase that pump. So what I would actually do is like, oh, this weight, you know, I'm just not feeling it anymore. I would take a low decrease and then try to do maybe an extra set, try to do more, more reps, you know, a bit more pumpy work in order to kind of chase that pump. When it's the case of like, no, the reason why you're not getting as much of a pump is because there's just not as much glycogen in your butt right now. <laughs> mm, yeah. I think it definitely reinforces the notion to, to film more. Yeah. But you know, bottom line is when you enter into a calorie deficit and you had great success with your training in the improvement season or whenever you were in a surplus and you were building muscle, really just try to keep things the same. Like if you, if progressions are there, freaking take them. Otherwise just try to at least match at a bare minimum. But then once you get down to a point where it's like, okay, just I've lost quite a bit of body weight now as a percentage of my total body weight and my form is starting to be compromised and my calorie intake is significantly decreased and I just really don't have quite the glycogen stores to even press these same weights, that's where you can maybe just make moderate and conservative changes to your training program. Don't flip everything on its head. Don't completely change your training program because man, I, I, I've seen it happen to competitors in the case of like, let's say that they're undertaking a 25 week prep and they're looking like really, really good up until they're about eight to six weeks out. But then it's maybe the case of like, they've just done something quite berserk with their training. And yeah, because they're just not providing quite that same stimulus that actually helps them build muscle in the first place. And they're doing a lot of different things, even though they're mixing things up with variety and they could say that, oh, I'm enjoying my training a little bit more. or I feel it a little bit more. Oh, you're in such a fragile position at that point already to be sacrificing tissue if you're really, really lean. If you're not giving yourself that adequate stimulus in the gym to help it stick around, 
then yeah, man, you're kind of might just be risking quite a bit of muscle loss there. So don't do it. Mm. <laughs> yeah, your body and your mind will find any excuse to make things easier mm-hmm. in those final 10 weeks of prep. Yeah. Often, which will unfortunately be coincided with muscle loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, it's just also, you just have to accept that, especially as a natural athlete, when you begin a competition prep, you have to be at peace with the fact of like, this is basically me actually getting on stage in terms of muscularity. I've probably got 97 to 99% of the muscle mass that I'm going to be stepping on stage with right now, despite being six months out. My primary well, you're, goal... you're more likely to lose muscle than gain muscle in prep. Yeah, but that that's the thing. Is like my primary goal right now is to hold on to this muscle for its dear life and purely just focus on losing a maximum amount of body fat while maintaining my muscle mass. That, that's the whole goal, really. It's, it's very rare, like you said, for people to be building muscle mass in a prep unless they are incredibly genetically gifted combined with probably still quite a newbie to training Mm. yeah all right well do we have uh time for one more question sure so this one says what questions should you be asking your coach during check-ins so again like i think it does depend on what phase you're in as a client like whether if you are a competitor then if you're in prep there's probably going to be a little bit more nuance to the check-in than than just a regular week 164 of the off season so I think what I usually tell my clients, especially clients who've never had any form of online coaching before is like, think about your training, think about your nutrition, think about like other lifestyle components as well. And then just literally speak about what comes to mind, whether that's you're doing a voice recording check-in or whether you're typing it out. Um, I think naturally, and especially if you are checking in every week, it's not like there's going to be a huge amount to check in on every week. Otherwise, that's either very, very good or it's or it's not so good, unfortunately, if you're having to give a huge essay every week. Um, speak about what comes to mind because naturally there might be some highlights associated with your training and there might be some less positive things as well, which which need, you need some advice on from your coach. And I think it's also important to highlight the positives, not just the negatives. So speak about things that went well. And it's not even necessarily questions that you're asking. Like part of it is you giving feedback to your coach on your week. So you're commenting on your week. It doesn't always mean there's going to be a lot of questions because it's part of the coach's responsibility to interpret what you're saying about your week and then give you feedback on on how the week has gone. So you, yeah, there won't always be questions is what I'm trying to say. Mm. But when there are questions, I love when there are questions. I I can honestly say that I have noticed a correlation between clients who get the most out of coaching and they have the best long-term results are those that are curious, those that invest in coaching because they genuinely want to learn. And I think that's awesome. And I think that really, if you are hiring a coach and you have a long-term vision for yourself, is that you should be working with a coach who you see as a really valuable resource. Like take advantage of your coach and really see them almost as like a cheat code. (laughs) And if things pop up during the week that you're curious about, you're like, hmm, I wonder what what Jack would think about this, right? Or like, right. It does make the check-ins a lot easier when people do ask questions, that's for sure. 
Absolutely. And I feel like I'm providing the best quality service to clients when I just, because I, I, I talk to all of my clients. I, I do video call check-ins with people just because I really value building that sort of relationship with people and actually being able to communicate by speaking. I feel like so much more can just be clear dialogue, but I love when people come to check-ins and they literally have a notepad and a pencil and they're like, I have a list of questions that I want to ask you. And I'm like, hit me up. I, I love it so much because I feel like I can really be a valuable resource to them and an educator and I can really help them. So I, I feel like I'm providing the best quality service and value when people are taking advantage of me in that sense and asking questions. And I, I think it's just the case of if you want to get the most out of coaching, Really, if you have a weekly check-in, like come to that check-in prepared. And if things happen during the week, write things down so that you don't forget as well. Mm. I think a lot of my clients, I tell them just to ask me questions when, outside the check-in as well. So mm. potentially, yeah, that's something I offer too. Yeah, absolutely. But <laughs> what questions should you be asking your coach? ask them anything and everything it's a that is a very open-ended question that could have a lot of answers mm, ask them that question yeah but also it's to the case of like what questions should i be asking my coach i think that you should have the type of relationship with a coach to basically be comfortable asking them anything and feeling like they're going to give you a response that's not judgmental but it's also very honest it's helpful it's educational like they're literally there to make sure that you feel supported and heard and that you're going to get the most out of this. So yeah, ask your coach any question. <laughs> yep. That relates to what you're doing. <laughs> but you know, sometimes they like, I've, I've, I've had ones that are like, Hey, this is completely off topic, but what do you think about? And I'm like, sure. I'll give my opinion on that. <laughs> if you asked. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Jack, Finally, to end this podcast, I've got one question for you. What's something that you learned this week? I learned that sometimes it's easier to just chop your dog's kilt off. <laughs> this might be unique to Border Collies, though. Because Border Collies, they especially... I mean, there's diff different like long-haired versus short-haired Border Collies. And then depending on how they're bred, like they have different coats and stuff. But our Border Collies, they have... We call them kilts, but they're essentially just a lot of hair on the backside. And I know Aussies, a lot of people do this with Aussies as well, but like, especially with border collies, like you don't, you don't need to give them haircuts because they do a good job of managing their own uh, coat. Yeah. And we do a good job of pulling out the Dyson every day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the only area of their coat, which does get a little bit mangled is their kilts. Like, so I've decided to um, give them a haircut myself just around the kilt area, which I think it looks pretty good if I say so myself. <laughs> as long as you don't cut it too close and then they end up looking like little baboons with a tail. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the kilts are like, they almost, when they're fully grown and you're like watching your dog like walk from the back, it almost looks like three tails. Mm. <laughs> and because they all kind of like, well, the tail can go up and spike up, but when it's just nice and down and relaxed, the other two kilts on either side, they triangle down too. So, yeah, I do see some people because we live next to a dog beach. A lot of people have started shaving their border collies, which I don't think is good oh. because 
that's not how dogs temperature regulation works they regulate their temperature by panting so it doesn't matter whether they have a short coat or a long coat mm. like that's what they're bred to to do that's what their evolution dictates and that plus they can in the summer they just make their coat less thick yeah exactly they shed mm. it all over the house and we got to vacuum mm. it up yeah <laughs> so yeah don't please don't shave your thick dog if you've got a a dog with a thick coat oh, because can you... it also causes sunburn too. Like their coat protects them from the sun. Exactly right. That's what I was going to say too. Like imagine these guys getting a sunburn, right? Mm. We already were told by the vet that just watch out for their little snouts because Boston, he's just like me, guilty pleasure, loves napping in the sun. But their snouts can turn a little bit too pink if they're out in the sun for too long. Yes, can. Yeah. So, but also like who wants to pet a, oh, like a really spiky border collie? Mm, not me. No, no. I can't even. Oh, gosh. No. Just trim the kilts <laughs> and, uh, yeah, buy yourself a vacuum. But the dogs are totally worth it. <laughs> yeah, I'd hope so. <laughs> what did you learn this week, Tiara? Oh, man. What I learned this week is that you actually can win things on social media. It's not just a whole bunch of wishful thinking. It's not just companies out there trying to get followers, trying to get likes, trying to get engagement, trying to get on the discovery page, whatever it may be. Because we all know those pages, probably girls more than guys, but heck, I'm sure there's a lot of pages out there that guys tag each other into to win free stuff, hopefully. But it's quite common for girls, at least in this space, with things like active wear, stage heels, bikinis, you know, makeup, you name it, where a popular company will put out a post and say, tag a friend, make sure you're following us and go in the chance to win something. So I get tagged in these things all the time, <laughs> but I got tagged in this thing by creative bikinis by a few of my clients. And the post was relating to tag a friend, make sure that you're following us and you could win a free posing bikini. And I thought that was pretty cool. I tagged some people as well. And lo and behold, I woke up one morning and I was tagged in a story from them saying that I'd actually won a free posing suit. So that's the first time ever I've actually won something off the gram, which mm. is super cool. So yeah, I was, I'm still like actually in shock that I actually won something, which I think is so neat, but I now have a posing bikini coming in the mail from creative bikini. So thank you so much. Hopefully it arrives next week. And I did choose red. So people on the gram might just see me prancing around now in a, uh, in a red bikini. How exciting for them. <laughs> Lady in red. I think that's the only lyric I know to that song. <laughs> is it, do you think that's a lyric or is it the name of the song? I think that's just the lyric in the song. I need to actually, or maybe it is called Lady in red. But heck, now I'm probably going to have to post a posing video and actually overlay that song. Yes. It's only appropriate. It's, it's either that or like, you know, that song where it's like, Roxanne, put on the red light. <laughs> that one? By the police, yeah. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right. Well, that's enough for now. But uh, thank you guys so much for listening to this podcast. Yes, thanks everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the episode and you're feeling generous, then you can leave us a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And we'll see you in the coming weeks, hopefully next week for episode 193.